Welcome to Count Me In with Ellen Deanna. Today we feature the second installment of our two-part conversation with the mathematician and musician, Dr. Eugenia Chang, a scientist in residence at the School of the Art Institute in Chicago, a concert pianist, and the author of several books, including How to Bake Pie, an edible exploration of the mathematics of mathematics, the art of logic, how to make sense in a world that doesn't, and X plus Y, a mathematician's manifesto for rethinking gender. Eugenia was born in the UK, earned three degrees from Cambridge, including a PhD in category theory, and now lives in Chicago, where she is dedicated to bringing mathematics to a wider audience. In this deeply personal conversation, we talk about the importance of doing things for other people, of the formative experiences of childhood, and of unexpected life experiences that shape us. So please join us as we talk with Eugenia. Uh, uh, who do you have with you to support you as you as you were dealing with these um, terrible concerns and issues? It, it's that, it's a good question, and I realize I kind of threw threw this topic in suddenly out of out of nowhere. It's hard to know how to insert it into conversation sometimes, and because it's always sitting there and in really quite the forefront of my consciousness. Um, mm-hmm. But it is it can be quite shocking to say it out loud because people mm-hmm. don't talk about it. And so sometimes I realize I may have just thrown it in and and surprised everyone somewhat. But it's I do have a wonderful partner mm-hmm. who is supportive, but it is hard because everybody has their own struggles. And this struggle is is it's like the exact opposite of so many people's struggles, especially during the pandemic. People who've been struggling with young children who are suddenly at home all the time and they have to do virtual school. And I know that's been very difficult for, for many people. And, um, and especially for many women dealing with the difficulties of trying to figure out how to have a career and children at the same time, the prejudices against mothers in the workplace, the assumptions that they won't be as good at things as some other people, the pressures of trying to do, schedule childcare and trying to um, deal with the timings of meetings when you have to deal with childcare and dropping children off at school if there is school. All of those pressures are like the opposite of what I have, which makes it really difficult to talk to people about it because most people are quite verbal about the struggles of having children and they and and I think that it's right that we should work harder to support those people so that women with children and men with children but so that people with children can fully continue to fully participate in society and not be excluded in the way that they used to be um, but at the same time it's actually quite a large minority of people who don't ever end up having children now I believe it's about 20 percent and there is an idea that those people are free and that they're empowered mm-hmm. and that, that they've chosen careers and that they're liberated. And the thing is that, that 90% of those people did not choose to be that way. Actually, mm-hmm. there are some very vocal, um, wonderful women who talk about how they chose to not have children, that they're, they're fully, they're totally fulfilled by their careers and they're empowered and it's great. And that's also wonderful. But there's this whole other 18% of people who, for whom it was not a choice. And mm-hmm. for them, it is very difficult and they're kind of invisible because we don't talk about it. And now that I am, I do talk about it a little bit, I, the, those people come out of the woodwork because 
once you start talking about it, you find the other people and they're there. They just don't talk about it because we're so, um, because we talk about the struggles of, of motherhood a lot. And it, it's, it's hard. And that's another way in which I want to be some kind of a role model, the worst kind of role model, a role model and something that you never wanted to be. Yeah. And if I can, if by talking about it, I can help other people to figure out ways of talking about it and to get the support that they need and to talk about the many issues that women face. Because of course, the status quo tries to pit us all against each other so that we can't unite and change the status quo. And so the status quo does things like pit mothers against non-mothers and it pits career women against people who have, have, have children. And none of those have to be adversaries. We can all work together and realize that we all have struggles. And the thing that unites us is the fact that the status quo is trying to keep us out and is trying to hold on to power and, and not let us have a voice mm-hmm. and, uh, and is trying to um, make it so that we spend more time fighting each other than, than fighting them. And so I'm definitely not trying to undermine the struggles of mothers. I'm, I would just like to have a voice as well, because especially during the pandemic, there's been a lot of, oh, it's been so much harder for people with children. Meanwhile, we went into lockdown and I was having another miscarriage and mm. I, it, it never, it never helps to compare people's struggles. You know, we don't have to have an Olympics of who has the biggest trauma. Um, yeah. But at the same time, mine is a, a struggle that it's not offset by any, any joy. And I think that the struggles of parenthood, as far as I understand it, it's a struggle, but it also also involves joy. Mm-hmm. And this isn't, and that makes it it makes it different. And mm-hmm. people often say, "Oh, you never understand what it's like and until you're a parent and maybe you don't, but you also can't understand what it's like to be unable to be a parent. Right. If right. you are one. And the best thing that we can do is try to extend empathy to each other. We can never understand another person's experiences, but, mm-hmm. but we can try and support each other and extend empathy and support. Mm-hmm. It's definitely wrapped up with other aspects of being a woman in mathematics as well, because mm-hmm. I think that, I've been thinking a lot, of course, during the pandemic, I have not been leaving the house. I haven't been traveling that there's been an awful lot of introspection time, which is for better and worse. And what led me here, a lot of it is that I did not meet my partner until I was already really quite old for having children. And, um, and up until that point, I was suffering from what is often called social infertility, which was just the inability to find a suitable partner. And I really felt that being a woman in mathematics was one of the things that made that extremely difficult because Mm -hmm. men, the ones I met anyway, were so horrified by what I did. They were terrified. They Mm -hmm. would run away screaming or sometimes not screaming, but sometimes very respectfully run away. Or the ones who didn't run away would just seek to belittle me because they could not 
deal with the fact that I was successful and independent and in a male-dominated field. Mm -hmm. And I think that it made them feel so bad about themselves that they just felt they had to belittle what I did or gaslight me into thinking that what I did wasn't really that great. Mm -hmm. And that made it extremely difficult to have any kind of sensible relationship. Um, And thinking about women mathematicians, I sometimes try, sometimes I want to do a study with women, women mathematicians who have male partners, what do their male partners do? Because Mm -hmm. I, I don't know if it's just confirmation bias on my part, but I really think a lot of them have partners who are mathematicians Mm -hmm. and that it's very difficult for female mathematicians to find anyone who isn't too daunted by them apart from other mathematicians. Mm -hmm. And, um, it also could be because at the, the crucial years you're in grad school and the only other people you meet are other mathematicians. It could be that, but somehow male mathematicians manage to have partners, female partners who are all sorts of things. And, um, and I don't know, but I, 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 I do acknowledge that that could be confirmation bias or just the people I mix with, but it's also a tiny sample size because I, there are so few female mathematicians I've encountered compared with male ones because it's still such a, a minority. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it the that that idea that um, I think it could do with exploring that there's a lot about how women women get blamed for everything, of course. So women get blamed for putting their careers first, or wanting to get educated, and that delays things, or putting off having children, or the really ludicrous one that women don't understand that their fertility will go into decline in their thirties, and so they put it off until it's too late, which is one of the most ludicrous things. The idea that any woman doesn't know that her fertility will decline at some point is ridiculous. And it's always men saying these things. And what I found was it wasn't me putting it off at all. I was ready to have children. As soon as I had my first job, I reckoned I just, for financial, um, for financial responsibility, I needed a job, just a job. And once I had a job, and I don't mean a permanent job, just I had any income, then I reckoned that I was ready. And it's just that at the time, none of the men I met were ready. They, they were all the ones saying, oh, I'm not ready to have children. Oh, I need to do that. Oh, I need that. Or maybe they just didn't want to have children with me because I was a female mathematician. And then my career just kept going. It's not that I deliberately put my career first. I didn't prioritize my career. I just didn't have a partner. And so my career just kept progressing the way it did. Mm-hmm. And I just happened not to have a partner. And so it just And then the more it progressed, the worse it got. And then when I started writing books and giving public talks and being on television and stuff, it got even worse. Then it was really a disaster. (laughs) And there was this amazing TV interview I did with a, um, it was breakfast TV in Ireland. And the, it was one of those classic TV presenter situations where the presenters were an old guy and a young glamorous woman, because God forbid that you should have a, a, an older woman presenting on TV, but with man, it's fine. You know, I'm an old guy. And just before we went on air, he said to me, are you single? And I was so shocked and I was newer to this media stuff at the time. So I didn't know what to do except answer honestly. So mm-hmm. I said, yes. And he said, I'm not surprised. You're too good at too many things. No man will ever want to be with mm-hmm. you. Oh, wow. And then we went on air. Oh, right wow. There. <laughs> Wow. And then you were like, how was that interview? How did yeah. that go? <laughs> Funny, I can't really remember. <laughs> um, Eugenia, I'd really like to hear, sincerely, I'm very interested in how I can be an ally 
to someone mm-hmm. who um, is going through the the trauma that you're going through. Um, I don't know. Should I ask questions? Should I not ask questions? I don't know how to respond to a colleague or a friend who's dealing with a series of miscarriages or the the trauma of uh, knowledge uh, that you may not have children. Thank you for asking. And that's a very interesting question. And I'm not quite sure myself. And I think that what I can think about um, is what I would like to do and how I, how I hope that people will respond. And I suppose that will some, somewhat answer your question. Mm-hmm. And so the, the first thing is to, to listen, as you have been, and to, to be sympathetic, sympathetic and show and to validate Mm-hmm. The, the pain, because one of the reasons that many of us don't talk about it is that we have suffered from having our pain invalidated mm-hmm. a lot. Mm-hmm. It doesn't, it sort of doesn't count. It's if someone's actual living child dies, then mm-hmm. it's obviously tragic and everybody knows that they need to help them through terrible grief. But when it is a child who hasn't been born yet, and for some people who are experiencing this grief, they never even, it's, they didn't even have any losses. They never even had a chance to try and have children. And so that's an even more, it's called disenfranchised grief. But um, I, and I think that, that again, it's one of those things where making comparisons isn't helpful, but, but validating that pain and validating the pain that we're going through is so, is so helpful. And, and acknowledging that we have different struggles and trying to make space for those and not make assumptions. And so I've been in many professional situations where there are just general assumptions that the struggles of balancing parenthood are very difficult mm-hmm. and that that's harder than if you don't have to balance parenthood and that everybody accepts that as an excuse that if you just say, or oh, you have a small baby, then everyone immediately knows that it will be expected that you will be slower at responding to emails and that you may forget things and that you may have to rush off suddenly and you can't concentrate on things. And that that can be very difficult for people who are struggling for other reasons, because there aren't, there isn't that awareness that that could be going on. on or, and the thing is that I don't blame people for not taking that into account all the time, because you never know what's going on in other people's lives. And you never know, you know, people complain, if you complain that you just, I don't know, if you complain that you just had a, a spat with your partner and maybe the other person's partner just died and you didn't know that or something, they're grieving. And, or if you complain that, that your parents are bugging you about whether you're going to go and see them for Christmas, but somebody else is grieving their parents, that can always be something that happens. And that's why I, I want to talk about it so mm-hmm. that. I don't sit in a corner silently feeling bad without anyone knowing about it. Um, But then all I hope is that once I do talk about it, um, people don't get defensive about the things that they've been saying, that that they acknowledge that that is, in fact, um, something that's terribly difficult. And I think that often what I found is that people who do have children are extremely sympathetic when I talk about it because they know 
I think, I mean, I shouldn't speak for them, but what I'm guessing is that they know how much their children mean to them mm-hmm. and what, what a huge difference life, what a big life change it was for them and how much a big part of their life that is. And so they can, they can sort of imagine how terrible it would be not to have that or if they didn't have that. And, and so I do find that, that most people, well, every, actually everyone I've talked to has been very, very kind about it, which I really appreciate. But I also know that, that people are insensitive about it when they don't know it's going on. And that's why I do feel like I want to talk about it because I don't feel like I can blame anyone for being insensitive about it if they don't know that it's even happening. But there's another, there's another aspect of that, which is not making assumptions about people who don't have children. Mm-hmm. And so um, I'm, I'm sort of curious and we could cut, we could cut this part out as well if it doesn't, if it doesn't work, but I'm curious about whether what you thought about me before you knew this, because I know that some people have assumed that I just didn't want children and that I was just devoted to my career and that, that, mm-hmm. uh, that I was an ambitious mathematician. That is what I assumed. I assumed that you were career focused. Um, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. I, I didn't have any reason to believe that. I just, um, you know, I, th- I think the, the status quo is if, if someone doesn't have children, it was their choice. And mm-hmm. um, we, don't, we don't often think about people who have been struggling to get pregnant. Mm-hmm. And I think it's, it's, in, it's always interesting to me when pressures work in opposite directions. And so at the beginning of, you know, in generations above, the only option for women was really to get married. And then the only option once they were married was to keep having children because there was no way to stop it. And mm-hmm. so then it was a very, the most important aspect of liberation was the opportunity not to have children. Mm-hmm. And then at some point, the important thing was to validate women's decisions not to have children and to have a career instead. And so in a way, there's a, there's a, a liberated feminist point of view that, should say, yes, we shouldn't assume that women want children. And many women have the opposite experience where they get fed up with everyone going on at them about when are you going to have children? And, and maybe they don't want children. So that's the kind of opposite tension. But then, yes, I do feel, um, I'm, I thank you for telling me that that's what you thought about me, because I have a feeling that's what people thought about me. And a few people have told me that. And, um, but I've been carrying this in my heart my whole life. I always wanted, that's all I ever really wanted. I never wanted it. I never wanted a career. Mm-hmm. I've never, I didn't want to climb any kind of a hierarchy. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to help people. And I just wanted to have enough financial stability that I wouldn't have to rely on a man ever. Mm-hmm. That was, that was my, what my mother taught me. She said, mm-hmm. don't ever be financially dependent on a man. And so I knew I needed a career. And the thing I was best at was mathematics. Mm-hmm. And so I got as much education as I needed to do that, which is a PhD. And then, but then I was ready and, but I've known I've wanted children. And this is one of the things when you said, what did I want to be when I was five? Well, I didn't even mention that I wanted to be a mother because that was mm-hmm. obvious. I always wanted to be a mother. Mm-hmm. And this is another interesting thing that when I was in grad school, all my female friends were horrified that I said I wanted children because to them, a feminist, independent intelligent, accomplished woman should not, they were horrified that I would admit that I wanted children. Of course, now they've all got children mm-hmm. and I'm the one who doesn't. And, but one of them told me recently that 
the reason she felt she had to say that was because she was so beset by misogynists in her field saying that women couldn't be intellectuals. And I actually never had that. I, um, I, no one ever told me I couldn't do it because I was a woman. Maybe those things got insinuated later, but no one actually just came out and said it. And I always felt that my research in category theory would, was valued for what it was in category theory. Now I'm a bit more realistic about the world. And I see that there are less direct ways in which it might not be quite like that. Like maybe my work is held to a higher standard when it's sent for peer review, for example. I have have a, a career-long gradual impression that my work might be being held to a higher standard than some of my male colleagues, but that's a whole separate kind of thing. No one ever just sat down and said, well, you can't do it because you're a woman. However, that is why I felt that I had to get tenure before I could change the direction of my career. Because I thought if I don't get tenure, everyone is going to say that it was just because I was a woman. Mm-hmm. And so I had to do that and then deliberately quit so that it, it wasn't open to any question. But apart from that, I never, I never had any direct questioning that women couldn't do it. Although there was one, there was one guy, a French mathematician, who said, "Well, of course, of course, women can't be successful in mathematics because they have to look after children, and then they can't do math anymore." And he thought he was being sympathetic. Mm-hmm. That was his way of being sympathetic. Well, yes, it's so hard for women because, and the, the number of assumptions involved in that is, it's one of those arguments that has so many flaws in it that you don't even quite know where to start but but yes it has it has hurt me deep inside that and I don't mean you particularly but just the idea that I give the impression of someone who doesn't want to have children because mm-hmm. I, that's what I've it's what I've always wanted and I do so much work with children I love working with children I've helped I've helped with a math um, in elementary schools for ever since I was a grad student and I I love the fact that I'm now writing children's books, although it's also a little bit painful because when I first sat down to talk to a publisher about my first children's book, I was actually pregnant. And I thought it would, and I saw a future of mm-hmm. writing children's books. And I always looked forward to talking about math with my children the way that my mother did. Mm-hmm. And I won't get to do that help it maybe I can reach other people's children and mm-hmm. the thing is it's not a consolation people oh, this is the other thing that I, I I want to say that that the narrative for people who can't have children is often oh you just need to find something to give your life meaning you can still have meaning in your life even if you don't have children mm-hmm. you can still leave a legacy and I think well of course my life has meaning and of course I'm leaving a legacy and of course everything I do has meaning but it doesn't help Mm -hmm. It doesn't in any way make up for it. Being, having a successful career, doing things that have meaning, helping other people's children. I mean, maybe I would feel even worse if I didn't have that, but it doesn't in any way fill that void because it's a different void. Like there's a void over here and there's this other thing that I'm filling up with all these other things. Okay, fine. But that void is still a void over there and it's always going to be a void. And the best I can hope for, I think, and I was thinking about this the other day, nothing is ever going to fill it. But the best I can hope for is that because I now know that that's not the direction that my life is going to go, I have believed that that was the direction it was going for my whole life. Now I know it's not, that maybe 
I will change direction and that that void won't be staring me directly in the face uh-huh. anymore, that it'll be mm-hmm. off to the side somewhere, just mm-hmm. as big, but not quite so directly in my face as it is now. Mm-hmm. So well, Eugenia, what do you do to take care of yourself? To turning, turning the question a little bit, what do you do to, um, you know, give yourself some peace and happiness? What, how do you look after yourself? That's a good question because like many women, I don't do it probably enough because I have been conditioned by society to believe it's selfish mm-hmm. and that we should always be looking after other people. And I have been trying to unlearn that conditioning. And one of the things I did to unlearn that was to when I quit my job, because when I was running myself into the ground, I kept telling myself, well, I'm doing this work for other people. And so I shouldn't seek to be happy myself. It's for other people. Mm-hmm. And now I finally understood that actually, if you run yourself into the ground, if you break yourself by doing that, then you don't even have the capacity to help other people anymore. So you, even, even if you don't think about looking after yourself, you can still think, well, I need to preserve myself if I'm going to keep helping other people. And honestly, doing things for other people helps me to feel whole and it helps me to feel like there is a point. And so talking about my pain in order to try and help other people who might be going through it, it doesn't heal it, but it at least gives me a purpose and makes me feel like there is some point. Music really is one thing that enables me and helps me to feel things that aren't, it's not analytical. It's not trying to understand anything. It's just feeling some things and playing music and singing music and making music, especially with friends can take me completely out of myself. And it's something that it doesn't have to have a specific purpose. Exactly. It just, in a, it means it's a, the way that I can feel some things that are not encumbered by all of that. Of course, sometimes it just then immediately taps open all of those things as well. And so the, the, the intense emotions of joy and pain are never that far apart, mm-hmm. really. But mm-hmm. that is definitely something that is helpful to me. And also trying to, to do things where I can see something happen, which is why I like cooking and I like baking elaborate things because it keeps me busy and but it's a little bit it's a little bit creative and it's a little bit methodical together mm-hmm. and that combination of things I think is really helpful plus something delicious then hopefully delicious <laughs> happens at the end and recently I've been disproportionately re- reactive when things haven't gone the way I want and so if something comes out not quite as well it's like a huge tragedy and that's one of the things about trauma is that everything becomes amplified so you know if I just if one thing I beg didn't come out quite right then it's like an enormous catastrophe and then you have to sit down and go okay well what's really going on here is that you tapped into the other catastrophe and you're 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 tired of feeling the other pain so you're just directing it all at these croissants you just made, which really are delicious. You just feel like they're slightly overcooked on one side. That's all. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh my goodness, your understanding of the human experience and mm-hmm. how it fits with other people's human experience is just profound. Mm-hmm. I just, I feel like I've learned so much from listening to you. Mm-hmm. Oh, thank you. Well, I talked to my students about this all semester, because at the beginning of this semester, I was really not sure I would make it through the semester. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And so I decided to just be open with them about what had happened to me. Mm-hmm. And they were so grateful and responsive about that because many of them art students, many of them have had traumatic experiences in their past. And I think that, that, that it's not exactly what drives them into art school, but I do think it is something that often drives them out of mainstream education, that mm. um, mainstream education is not well equipped to deal with people who are going through trauma that causes them to be perhaps unable to deal with those kinds of settings. For example, mm-hmm. maybe it means that they have been unable to deal with strict classroom settings or, or focused timetables of exams and homework and things like that. Mm-hmm. So many of, many of my students have trauma in their experience and they have expressed a lot of gratitude to me for just speaking openly about it and understanding that, that it is an ongoing struggle and that that means that some days you have to try and show up when you're having a really terrible day or it means that you didn't sleep all night and that you're going to try and show up anyway. And, and talking to them openly about that has not only helped them feel safe, it helps them feel safe talking to me about the things that they're going through, but it has also been, I think it humanizes math and that to them, and I think this is quite widespread, math often seems like it's a completely unhuman I don't mean inhuman, I mean just unhuman. And of mm-hmm. course, that sort of is the point of math. It's sort, sort of the point of math is to, to have something that is abstract so that it is not dealing with human things because it's dealing with logic and abstraction. But the thing is that doing math is still a human experience. And I think that we, in education, in normal math education, often spend so much time focusing on the part that isn't human because we're trying to teach the abstraction and the rigor and the logic that we don't spend enough time being human. Mm-hmm. And I don't know that I ever thought of my professors as humans exactly when I was a student. I don't know what I thought they were. I mean, some of them were so, so extraordinarily capable of writing out complex formal logical statements and doing things like closing all the nested brackets, 11 nested brackets accurately without (laughs) even thinking about it. But it did make me wonder whether they were quite human (laughs) or not. Before tech gave you an error message, they forgot one of those. That's right. Are we ready to switch into rapid fire? Sure. Okay. Our first one. When you wake up in the morning, Mm -hmm. what do you look forward to about your professional day? About my professional day? Gosh, I don't really look forward to anything when I wake up in the morning. I don't like, (laughs) I don't like waking up in the morning. So so I try to eat something really delicious for breakfast to entice me to actually want to get up, which is why I make espresso and I make macarons and I've been making salted butter, salted caramel, salted butter caramel macarons to have for breakfast to try and entice me to get up. (laughs) But, you know, the thing is that I love giving talks. I love meeting people and communicating with people. Mm -hmm. And so it's good that you ask me that because sometimes I have to remember that there are things to look forward to. That's one of the things that has been a problem in my trauma. And it's been a problem with COVID because there haven't been any public talks. Giving a public talk online is not mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't look forward to that I'm afraid I'm glad that I'm able I'm glad we're able to do it and that it does reach people and it means things to people but but I 
I'm abstractly looking forward to when I can actually stand up in front of humans mm-hmm. again and communicate with them, not through a screen, but just with actual air particles vibrating. <laughs> it's hard to feel the love in an online talk. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, second question. Uh, when you need to be energized, what's your go-to song? What do you like to listen to? Oh, gosh. Well, I mean, right now I would say Bach's Christmas Oratorio because, oh. because that's the concert that I did this week. But it has trumpets and it has timpani and it's very... The thing is that most of the music I like is really tragic. Mm-hmm. And so it's not exactly energizing. It's more <laughs> cathartic. And, <laughs> and so... Um, but that, the beginning of it with the trumpet and the timpani and the choir singing, yay, basically, <laughs> but in German, yay in German, um, is definitely what I would say right now. Good. Tell us about a place that you really enjoy. Oh, the beach, the beach. I haven't been to a beach. This is what I really, I haven't been anywhere for two years and the thing that is really starting to become a fixation in my head is the beach in Nice because when I did a postdoc in Nice for a year I really did a lot of research on the beach most people don't believe me but mathematicians usually believe me and I would sit there with my notebook because I'm a pure mathematician I just sit with a notebook and a pen I don't need a computer or anything and sit in the sun with the sound of the waves crashing on the the pebble beach. And I've always been particular about pebble beaches. It's partly because I grew up in Brighton in England where it's a pebble beach, but it's so much more practical. You don't get sand everywhere. You don't have to, you don't have to wear special clothes. You can just wear whatever you're wearing, go and sit on the pebbles. And the, the sound of the waves on the pebbles is different from the sound of the waves on sand. And I like looking out to the sea and thinking that water connects us all in the whole world. It's the same water, the mm-hmm. same body of water. And that makes me feel connected with the world and free to think. And you have to feel very free to, to do dreamy research. And so the beach in Nice, I don't know when I will get there. I was supposed to go in the <laughs> summer of 2020. That didn't happen. Then I was going to go in the summer of 2021. That didn't happen. Will it happen in the summer of 2022? I don't know. I'm not holding my breath. okay what's something that's on your desk that would really surprise us gosh what is on my desk that would release i don't know what a a huge quantity of mess (laughs) (laughs) i don't think that would really surprise us okay maybe not (laughs) um can i say how about under my desk i treadmill i have a treadmill at my desk oh very good Mm -hmm. i like um, walking while I think about things. I've always wanted treadmills in seminar rooms because I just fall asleep in seminars, no matter what is going on. Because I think that thinking about math is a dreamy state and that dreamy state puts me very close to sleepiness. Mm. And because I'm always slightly underslept anyway, because if I'm not underslept, then I won't fall asleep at night. And so I keep myself in a slightly underslept state, which means, and and I swear it's this, not that seminars are boring, of course, but that means I'm likely to get very sleepy in seminars. And if I could just walk on a treadmill, I just wouldn't be sleepy. Um, and now that is, I suppose, one thing I can say about Zoom seminars, which is that I can, in fact, walk on my treadmill while I'm at a Zoom seminar. 
and it doesn't disturb anyone. If my camera's on, it has this odd effect that I sort of look like this <laughs> the whole time. I suppose on a podcast you can't hear, but I'm bobbing up and down. And um, so, yes. My last question. In a single sentence, what do you, would you say to a person considering a career in mathematics? Oh, gosh. In a single sentence, what would I say to a person considering a career in mathematics? I think it would depend what kind of person they are, honestly. And I think I might say, if you think you're not good enough, that doesn't mean that you're not good enough. And if you think you are good enough, that doesn't mean that you are good enough either. Mm-hmm. And so I think what I'm trying to say is that if it's the kind of person who thinks they're really great and that they should, then I would want to warn them that that might actually mean they're not good enough because most of the people who think they're really great are actually mistaken. Whereas there are a lot of people who think they aren't good enough and it's mostly women and people of color who think they're not good enough. And it's mostly because people have told them that they're, they're not good enough or because they are very self-critical. But that actually that's a really important part of being a good mathematician. <laughs> Very nice. Well, oh, Eugenia, thank you so much for your time today. We really appreciate it. Thank you for um, opening up to us and, and telling us your story and what's going on in your life right now. I think it's very important for people to hear. Well, thank you. I, um, yeah, I'm sorry. I kind of dropped in all of a sudden, but I suddenly thought, I don't know when we're going to drop this in. And I didn't know if you were waiting for me to mention it. And so I thought, well, I'll just mention it. And there, and there it is. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, no, I, I, I appreciate it. Well, thank I think you. Listeners are going to really appreciate that, mm-hmm. especially um, just your, not only aware, your awareness of your own self, but also how your own self is fitting into the selves of so many other people. Mm-hmm. And how you want that to be a, I'll use the word loving, but I think maybe the, the better word is caring, mm-hmm. a caring space. You want to be part of that caring space. You want to be cared for in that caring space, but you're really about making a caring space for everybody. Mm-hmm. And what you're learning right now is really helping you do that. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yeah. But it also just raises awareness, not just for this presumption but for the way we make those about lots of people and we don't need to be in the business of doing that Mm -hmm. yeah and I talked to someone the other day who I mentioned it and then there was this silence and she said that in fact she had been unable to have children Mm -hmm. and that there were three women in her department and one of them had a child but two of them had been unable to and Mm -hmm. and I thought gosh I wonder how many people realize that and whether they were going to talk about it if I hadn't mentioned it. Mm -hmm. And so I was glad I did mention it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, me too. You know, I think there are a lot of women who, uh, mathematicians, who because of the nature of our career, they wait longer or they focus, um, they wait longer to have partners or they can't find a partner or they wait longer because they want to establish their career so that they get taken seriously. Right, right. And there's also that thing that if you have to keep moving country for a postdoc, then for a woman to find a man who will move with her, or that was first of all, that's very rare, or you then you can't start because you're not even in the same place until that can take until you're at least 30 or something. And mm-hmm. then you're already kind of old. Mm-hmm. I mean, 
for having children. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for being brave enough to share that with us. Thank you. Well, I really appreciated our time with Eugenia. Um, she's had such an interesting career and an interesting life. And um, boy, very, very powerful things she was telling us about. Della, what did you take out of our talk? Yeah, I agree. I really, her sensitivity um, to so many different aspects of a career in mathematics and to humanity in general. But I love the way she started talking about the early influences in her life, the way her mom brought mathematics to life, her piano teacher, the way the piano teacher taught mm-hmm. her early on to listen carefully mm-hmm. and offer feedback. And even the headmistress, who she described as having a heavy hand, but who taught her the important lesson of you have something to bring to the group. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I loved her. She just had such a strong foundation about helping others. And that just resonated through so much of her life. The role of music in her life. And um, I feel like I'm repeating myself, but these podcasts really teach me about all the moments of our life really do add up. Mm -hmm. and that she I mean she's very qualified to have a position teaching mathematics to art students Mm -hmm. she's not just winging it right she's a professional (laughs) in both strands and it comes out even in the rapid fire question when we were talking to her about where she would like to be go where she would like a place she likes and she described the pebble beach not just a beach, but a pebble beach because of the way the waves crash to the shore. Mm-hmm. So her ability to listen and hear. Um, I also just admire her courage. Mm-hmm. She had a job, a tenure track job. She thought about where she'd like to live in the world and she figured out how to make that happen. That just takes so much courage. Mm-hmm. But above all, she taught me a great deal about understanding humanity on an individual and collective level. Mm-hmm. And I'm I'm changed because of this conversation, especially relative to that point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really, um, I love that she pointed out that she became sure of who she was without the pressure of gender stereotypes. It's really interesting to see someone grow up in that situation and what it can mean for their future careers. And, and just um, her strength and her strength in helping others get through difficult times and, and caring for others. It was a it was a great interview. Well, thanks so much for joining us. Until next time, we're counting you in. See you. Count Me In with Della Indiana is produced by the talented Aiden Martin. Music created by Casey Fenster and podcast damaged by Victoria Robinson. <laughs>